talk a little bit about a, uh, something I mentioned to you before. I, I've told you that the sabbatical that uh, my, I, I say me, but really my family and I were able to take this summer continues to, to bear fruit in our lives. It was such a rich time of just being refreshed spiritually, being reconnected together as a family. We're still bearing the fruit uh, of that time, and we're so, so grateful. And one of the things that I thought about during that time was uh, the significance of the benefit of having that opportunity, but how that opportunity, at least at the, up until this point, has kind of been reserved for pastoral staff here at the church. And there's a couple men that I thought of that I felt like really uh, deserved uh, an opportunity for a sabbatical as well, and that's our lay elders, in this case, Hud and Carrie. And I thought about the fact that, you know, these men oftentimes uh, uh, probably need one more than us because not only are they holding down a full-time job and leading their families, but they're devoting considerable time, emotional energy, and shepherding this church. So over the last few weeks, uh, the elders have talked together about developing a policy that would allow our, sta- our lay elders to have a sabbatical as well um, so that they could just kind of s- step away and uh, refresh themselves spiritually, reconnect with their families. And so that's something that's been approved as we've walked through that together. It's not mandatory. It happens about uh, like it does with the pastoral staff every seven years, about three months in endurance, or, uh, duration. And uh, so that's something that's currently in place. Now, since HUD Huddleston is about 20 years overdue, um, we decided we would start with him. So beginning this month, HUD is going to take a, a sabbatical where he just steps away uh, for some time of spiritual refreshment, reconnection with his family. And I want you to kind of understand what that means for us. Um, what that means is essentially HUD will not be a part of of our elder meetings where we come together to talk about things that are happening within the life of the church and pray and spend time walking through those with each other. Um, if you've been a part of a Sunday school class, you know he's increasingly delegating some of those teaching responsibilities to other qualified men to serve in that role. And then he's just going to be able to just create some space to have some time of spiritual refreshment and being able to connect with his family. So here's a couple of ways you can help. Um, If you would, just pray for HUD and pray for that time as you did for me. And it was such a blessing for me and my family. And I trust it'll be the same for him. But do pray for him. And if you have the opportunity, encourage him. Uh, HUD has been a faithful uh, shepherd of this church family for a lot of years. And so just let him know how significant and important that is. And I know that'd be a blessing to him. Um, the other thing is, is if you've had things that, that you would normally take to HUD that you would want to get uh, perspective from the elders on or want to walk through with us, please redirect those from him to one of the other three of us, to uh, Mark or Carrie or I, and we'll be glad to walk through those things uh, with you. Uh, we would be honored to do so. So those are some things that you can do just to help him have some space uh, to be able to be refreshed and reconnect with his family. Uh, but Given that, uh, then there were three. (laughs) Uh, The absence of one really highlights the need that we have within this body to see other men raised up to serve as a shepherd elder within this church. So, as you pray for HUD, will you pray for other elders, other men who would be raised up from within this this body to serve in that role? 
Um, and to really understand the significance of that, uh, which is one of the motivations for what we're doing in the spring that Carrie mentioned during announcements, I would ask you to prayerfully consider being a part of that uh, biblical eldership series. Uh, it'll be no more than eight weeks, potentially less than that. Um, and we just want to walk through uh, what Scripture has to say about that and its importance within the life of a church um, by God's design. I think it'll do a couple of things. One is, I think when we understand the significance of that for a church body, I think it will increase the fervency of our prayers for men to serve in that role. And it may just stimulate within the heart of some men a desire to serve in that role. Uh, At least that's what we're hopeful for. But we want anyone who's interested um, to come and be a part of that. But mostly I would ask that you pray for HUD. Uh, Pray for his time of sabbatical, that it would be used by God in significant ways. Uh, Pray for future elders. And with that, let me just pray for our time together this morning. Father, we want to come to you and just one, one, just as we talked about, thank you for HUD. Thank you for his faithful uh, shepherding of this church body for many, many years. And we pray together as a church family that the time that he has to step away and to just be refreshed and reconnect with his family would be a tremendous blessing uh, for him and for those he loves. Uh, We do pray together as a church family for other men within this body who you might work in their hearts and in their lives to raise them up to serve and to shepherd and to love this church family that we are so privileged to be a part of. And Father, as we come to open up your word this morning, would you just allow us to have a teachable heart that we would listen and uh, hear what you have to say about such important gifts that you've given us. And may that continue this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, have another gift. Who's interested in opening the next gift? Cash, you want to open it? All right, come up here, bud. I'll give you a head start. I always hated when they tied knots because I never could untie the knot. I think I made that simple for you. What does that say? Forgiveness. forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean to you? How has that impacted your life? We all sin a lot, bud. And God always forgiveness. You're right. Is, is that a gift that you can actually re-gift? Can you give that gift to someone else having received it? Absolutely you can. So do you mind putting that on the tree over there? Thanks, bud. Let's give Cash a hand. Cash, what grade are you in? Seventh grade. Leave it up. Thank you. Leave it up to a seventh grade boy to be the bravest one in this entire church. I want you to know that was the only hand that was raised when I asked that question. Cash, you're the man. Thank you. So in many ways, forgiveness really flows out of the gift of grace. The two are deeply connected to one another. And and Paul makes that point in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you want to, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. I'm going to have several verses this morning. And I've been told that when I do that, people can't keep up with me. And so I've gone to the, uh, uh, took some time this week to put them on the screen so that you can have those verses if you want to. You can write them down or you can look them up, whatever you want to do. But hopefully that'll be helpful. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Redemption through his blood and forgiveness through his grace, which he lavished upon us. Those are really two parallel thoughts that are, are deeply connected to one another. Redemption is this idea of being liberated, set free from bondage in some way. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus set us free. He released us from the bondage of sin by taking that sin upon himself when he shed his blood on the cross. The greatest possible gift came at the greatest possible cost. But then it goes on to say that he did this for the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. And the words being used here are very significant, so let's not miss them. It said, according to, not from. And that's significant. For example, if I'm a billionaire, which this is a stretch, so stay with me. Let's just say I am a billionaire. I've got all the money I could ever need for a thousand lifetimes, right? And maybe I'm going to bless Doug out of the uh, riches of my grace, okay? The riches of my wealth. And so I might buy Doug a new car, okay? I might tell Courtney, I'm going to pay for your tuition in college out of the riches. I give them a part of what I have. And I bless them. And those would be generous gifts, you agree? But if I blessed Doug or Courtney or anyone else according to the riches of my grace, the riches of my wealth, that that means everything that belongs to me now is accessible to you. It's not a part of. It's everything that that includes. And so what this passage is, in telling, is telling us is that Jesus forgives us according to the riches of his grace. It is a gift of such magnitude you would never be able to exhaust its supply in a thousand lifetimes. It is far greater than anything we could ask or imagine. There is no limit to his forgiveness because it flows out of the unlimited supply of the riches of his grace. And so when you think about grace, you should think about God. Because that's the source of where grace ultimately comes from. And so to consider what that looks like, turn to Exodus chapter 34. Now, this should be a familiar passage because we looked at this one when we looked at the life of Moses. And so let's remind each other about what that said. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will not by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and on grandchildren to the third and, and fourth generations. As we talked about when we looked at this passage in our study of Moses, this is the first time that God openly describes his own character. And for that reason, it's a hugely significant passage. In fact, it's used dozens of times in Scripture as others quote this passage. It kind of became a, a working definition of God. And what we see 
embedded within this definition, this self-description of his character, is a heart of forgiveness. It's what God does because it's who God is. He's a forgiving God. Nehemiah kind of captured that idea when he spoke about God, looking back at the life of the Israelites during their time in the wilderness. And this is what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. He says, And they refused to listen and did not remember the wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And you will not forsake them. So Nehemiah is going back to this working definition of God. And he's highlighting the fact that despite their rebellion, you didn't forsake them. In fact, you forgave them because you are a God of forgiveness. Forgiveness is what God does because it's who God is. If we go back to that Exodus passage, we kind of see the the scope of that forgiveness. When he says in verse 7, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So the writer uses three, nature, three words to kind of describe the, the scope and nature of what he's talking about. The first one is iniquity. Iniquity is the idea of wickedness. It's knowing what is right, but deliberately choosing what is wrong. And then he uses the word transgression. This is a stronger word. Some of your Bibles may translate that, translate that as, as rebellion. If you have NIV, I think that's what it says, rebellion. It's this idea of a defiant betrayal. So it's not just choosing what is wrong. It is betraying a relationship in doing so. Sin is a word to to describe any variety of moral failures. Essentially, it's a heart that is unfaithful to God. And so what he seems to be doing here is making the point that there is no category, however you might want to define it, That would in some way be off limits. No iniquity, no transgression, no sin. Nothing we can do that will move us outside the boundary of God's forgiveness or exhaust the supply of his grace. There's no limit to his forgiveness. Why? Because there is no limit to the riches of his grace. But the passage does go on to say that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. So forgiveness doesn't mean that God looks at the sin in our lives and just looks the other way as if it didn't happen. Because he's a just God, and that wouldn't be just. I mean, just think about being in a courtroom and somebody bringing somebody before a judge and said, Judge, uh, this person is guilty having admitted to robbing his neighbor. What would it be like if the judge heard that and said, okay, let me think about it. Eh, eh, It's okay, let them go. The next one comes up, judge, this person's guilty of killing his neighbor. Eh, It's okay, let them go. That's not right. That would be appalling. And so we need to understand that, that that's not what the heart of God is all about. He is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love slow to anger. He's a forgiving God, but he will not let the guilty go free. 
So now we have a problem. Because guess what? You and I are guilty. Cash said what applies to all of us. I sin a lot. (laughs) We're guilty as charged. God forgives. Because forgiveness is a part of his nature. It's who he is. We sin. Because sin is a part of our nature. It's who we are. And just as God cannot go against his nature and somehow become unforgiving, we cannot go against ours and somehow become incapable of sin. So now we have a conundrum. (laughs) It's like trying to force the same pole of a magnet towards each other. It's like the harder you push, the more they force themselves away from one another. Same thing is happening here. The one is inherently opposed to the other. God's justice and our guilt. God's holiness and our sin. We are guilty. And God will not let the guilty go free. And since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, his nature's not going to change. So that means that something has to change in us. The question is, how? Let's begin to answer that by looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2. Or not Corinthians, Colossians. Sorry, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 13. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says, And when you were dead in your transgression, your sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, with Christ having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is another one of those passages where uh, Paul describes our condition apart from Christ as having been being dead in our sin. And as you've heard me say before, dead people don't move. He goes on to describe that in addition to that being dead in our sin, it says that we are uncircumcised in our flesh. Now, what does that mean? The NIV is actually helpful here because it describes it as being uncircumcised in our sinful nature. That is really kind of getting to the heart of the issue because Paul is highlighting the condition of our heart apart from Christ. Our sinful nature is our natural state, uncircumcised. It's what we are born with. We're born with a sinful nature that separates us from a relationship with a holy God. We are dead in our sin, and our sin is a part of who we are. It is our nature. So if something has to change in us, It cannot come from within us. It has to be something that God does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Which is why verse 13 goes on to say, He, God, made us alive together with Him, Christ. So there it is. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God made us alive together with Christ. And he says he did that by by forgiving all our sins. And don't miss the all. That's important. Because as Cash said, we sin all the time. (laughs) 
So it's important to know that he forgives all our sins. Paul describes it then in verse 14 in a different way. He says, it's canceling a certificate of debt. And if you will, just think of that certificate debt of debt as a lifetime list of all the possible ways that you will have sinned. It's a record of all your sins. And what he's saying here is that, that God took the blood that was shed by Christ on the cross and he used it to stamp on that certificate of debt paid in full. That's what he's saying. Like grace, forgiveness is an undeserved, unexpected gift from God. But remember, a gift, by definition, must be received. We receive the gift of forgiveness when we look at the cross and we see an innocent man being punished for all our sins. His blood shed for the forgiveness of all our sins. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. This is one of my favorite verses. Listen to what he says in chapter 10, verse 12. But he, Christ, having made one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So if you put those two passages together, we learn that Christ died for all sin, for all time, past, present, and future. So he didn't just wipe the slate clean, he threw the slate away. The slate doesn't exist when we receive that gift of forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Even the psalmist goes on and he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Are you starting to get the magnitude of the significance of this gift? Well, the Bible actually gives us several tests, several little ways to determine if we really get it. If we've really understood and received that magnificent gift of forgiveness. And as usual, it's usually in the form of a parable because we understand stories and we get the point of those stories. So Jesus speaks to this issue in one of his parables. This one will not be on the slides because I want us to walk through it together. So turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. So in this parable, Jesus is going to help us determine if we've really received and understood the gift of forgiveness. And look at how he does it, beginning in verse 23. He says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there were brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, now, slavery in that time is a lot different than what we think about in our recent history. For them, very often, it was a way for people to work off their debts. So they could pay for their debts through labor. Which is why in this parable it says the, the king wishes to settle accounts with his slaves, those who owed him 
money. And the first person that was brought to him uh, was a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we hear that term, and it means absolutely nothing to us because we don't really know what a talent is. So if we were to take that amount of money in that day and convert it into what we would see in our current currency today, it's almost a billion dollars with a B. It's a lot of money. In fact, it's more money than this man could ever repay in a thousand lifetimes. This is a parable. And so Jesus is telling a story with intent. He's trying to make a point. And the point that he's making as he talks about this man is that this man has a debt that he cannot repay. Now, based on what we've been talking about this morning, do you have a clue as to where Jesus might be going with this parable? Here's a man who has a certificate of debt that he cannot repay. This man in this parable is you and me. We are that man. We have a debt that we cannot repay. So now I'm interested in what this parable is going to be about. Look at verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with, all, uh, his, with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated him himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him his debt. So since this man was undeniably unable to repay what he owed, the king ordered him to be sold along with his family. Essentially, what this is describing is that the relationship was to be terminated. It was a sentence of separation. In, in hearing this news, the slave fell before the king, and he begged for mercy. He, he said, please, please be patient. I promise, I promise, I will repay everything I owe. Now, on one hand, we hear that, and we go, wait a second. He just made a promise that it's impossible for him to keep. On the other hand, he is clearly admitted to the fact that he has a debt that he owes. He doesn't uh, say, well, this is unfair or, or this is not right or, um, or in some way say that he didn't really owe that money. No, he, he admits, I owe the money and I will spend the rest of my life trying to pay that off instead of being separated from his king. Seeing the desire of the man, the king says, was moved with compassion. He knew the man could never work hard enough to repay that debt. So he took that certificate of debt, that list of everything that he owed, and he simply stamped on it, paid in full. It's done. Out of the riches of his wealth, the king canceled his debt. And so in this parable we see essentially what Jesus has done for us. We have a debt that we could never repay. We could do good works for a thousand lifetimes and we wouldn't make a dent in what we ultimately owe because we keep adding to our debt every day we breathe. But God, in great compassion, did 
what we could not have done for ourselves. He gave his life through his death on the cross and used the blood to stamp on our certificate of debt paid in full. But here's what's interesting. Jesus hadn't even gotten to the main point of the story yet. You believe that? He hadn't even gotten to the main point. Let's look at how he continues in verse 28. But that slave, the one who had just been forgiven, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a few thousand dollars. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me. And I will repay you. Don't lose the fact that he used the exact same words that, uh, that he had used back in 26. He said, have patience with me and I will repay you. It's the same words. But the man who had been forgiven such an enormous debt, an unpayable debt, would not forgive a failed slave a very minuscule debt by comparison. But it gets worse. Look at verse 30. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. So not only did this man refuse to give grace after having been given grace that had been lavished upon him, he punished him. He threw the man in prison for being unable to repay. And when his fellow slaves saw what was going on, they knew immediately, this is not right. Something's off. And so they go to the Lord and they tell him what they found. Look at what this king does in, rep- in response. Then, summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because... You entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I've had mercy on you? And as his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. The most disturbing part of the parable is this last part, right? The man was to be tortured until he repaid a debt he could never repay. What is that? That's eternal judgment. And the reason for the judgment is because of the hardness of his heart. You see, he knew forgiveness in his head. But his heart never changed. He knew what the king said but it never changed his life. You see, the litmus test for those who have been forgiven is the willingness to forgive. Paul says it very clearly in Colossians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 13. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 12. I know that's not... Oh, it is. Look at that. Look at verse 12. And so... And and the reason I'm doing this, because I want you to notice the terminology. Listen to these adjectives in the description of what God asks of us based on how he disclosed his own character 
back in Exodus. And as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He actually says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, when he says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. You see, the gift of forgiveness flows out of the unlimited supply of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. We give to others out of the overflow of what we've received from Christ. And when we have nothing to give, there's a really good chance we've never received. And the more we appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness, the more we're willing to give it away. But even as I say that, I don't want you to hear me say that forgiveness is easy. It's actually very costly. Just ask Jesus. And the same is true for us. C.S. Lewis actually describes it. Uh, it's kind of funny for us to hear that this, the, these days, but he describes it to his efforts to quit smoking. <laughs> he says it this way. He says, I didn't just give up smoking once. He said, I gave it up dozens of times. And then he goes on to say, I don't forgive just once. I find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. That's why it's important to keep short accounts. To not put people in prison by holding a grudge. It's the idea of surrendering your right to hurt someone because they've hurt you. And that's not easy. And chances are, you will have to forgive the very same person over and over again. But as we do, we grow closer to understanding who God is. Someone once said, we're most like animals when we kill. We're most like men when we judge. We're most like God when we forgive. When we can remember the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us, the more willing we are to give out of the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness in accordance with the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. Let me encourage you to camp out there this week. Just go back to that verse and pick it apart and see all the goodness that is built into that. Appreciate the magnitude of the gift of forgiveness that has been given to you. And with that, renew your desire to give it away. I'm going to take a leap here, but feel pretty strongly that God doesn't mind if you re-gift on this one. Take out of what he's given and then give it away. Regift his gift of forgiveness. <laughs> Let's pray together.
Maybe the best way to begin is just by confessing and asking for forgiveness for our unwillingness to forgive. How easy it is for us to be forgetful of how much we've been given. The riches of your grace that have been lavished upon us. A certificate of debt that we could have never repaid. And using that blood that was so costly when you gave your life, you have stamped, paid in full on that certificate of debt for sins past, present, and future. We sin a lot because that's who we are. You forgive a lot because that's who you are. So, Father, as we recognize that gift of forgiveness that came with such great cost, and may we appreciate the magnitude of what we've been given, and through that, be ever more willing to give that gift to others, which doesn't mean it's easy. It's very costly. And very often we have to keep giving that gift over and over again, very often to the very same person. But as we do, we begin to understand what it's like to be forgiven by you over and over again. Father, thank you for your great love for us and help us to share that love with others by having a heart of forgiveness. We pray this in your name. Amen.